Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as interim pastor Kyle Julius shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Kyle. Oh, good morning. How could I not preach an exalted Christ after hearing Him exalted in your singing and just hearing Him exalted in your own hearts throughout the week. Uh, I think I said this the first time that I ever preached here, or maybe it was the second time I preached here, I thought to myself, y'all make it easy for me to preach. So if I preach well, uh, it's because y'all worship well. So thank you for making it a little bit easier to come up here and do that. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're going to pick up where we left off, starting in verse 10 of chapter 6. And we're going to read from verse 10 all the way to verse 20 this morning. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that in this moment you would exalt your name in our hearts that you would help me to preach what is in the text. God, we're asking the text to speak to us this morning. What you have here, I pray that you would would drive away my own opinions, my own thoughts, and that your word would be elevated so that your people might be shaped, that we might be shaped, that we might be made more into the image of Jesus, and that we would see him as beautiful, as big, and as worthy. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to confess, even as an American, my favorite statesman in history has to be Sir Winston Churchill. I was once asked if I could put anybody else on Mount Rushmore, who would it be? And yeah, I don't know if that's a, you know something I should tell people, but it would be Winston Churchill. Uh, the British Bulldog, uh, as he is otherwise known as, that stout bulwark leader of Great Britain uh, during World War II, as we all know, who waged war against Hitler in the Nazi empire simply by refusing 
to sign peace treaties and work negotiations with the Nazi regime. Towards the end of his famous speech to Parliament, June 4, 1940, just after the rescue mission of Dunkirk, he declares these words. I'm not going to read his whole speech, by the way. I'm, that's 12 minutes long. If you want to hear that on YouTube, you can. But towards the end of the speech, he, he declares, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen, or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it, were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue in the liberation of the old. And with these words, Winston Churchill and all of Great Britain waged war against the evil forces of the Nazi empire. Well, our text this morning also has a call for the church of God to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. That's what our text, verses 10 through 20 in chapter 6, it's the heart of Paul's message here as he wraps up the letter of Ephesians is to wage war, the church is called, he is calling the churches at Ephesus to wage war on the kingdom of darkness. And, and there are two orders that the Apostle Paul gives the churches in Ephesus in order to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. While we might not be fighting a, a physical war against the forces of evil, our text makes clear this morning that we are in a war nonetheless. And that war has to be fought, and we have to know how to fight that war if we're going to win, if we're going to advance, if we're going to make progress in the kingdom of light, we need to know how to do that. And so... Uh, the first order that Paul gives us is found in verses 10 through 6, and it is simple. Paul's order is to stand firmly on the gospel of Christ. Stand firmly on the gospel of Christ. Uh, if at any point in this study of Ephesians you have asked yourself the question, why is this so difficult? Uh, why is walking in the good works God prepared for us beforehand in chapter 2, verse 10, why is that difficult? Uh, why is being active in the life of my church such a struggle? as we've seen in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13? Or why is unity in the body so hard to maintain and work towards, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16? Um, how come living out my salvation feels daunting sometimes, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24? Why does marriage, why does raising children and doing my daily tasks to the glory of Christ, why does at time it feels like an all-out assault on my soul? Have you ever been there? If at any point during this study of Ephesians, have you ever asked yourself, Man, I, I, amen to all of this, but why is this incredibly difficult? Well, the answer is to that, in large, in large part, is due to verses 10 through 20. It's because we have an enemy. 
It's because there are things at play right now that we can't see that are gunning after our souls. And Paul opens in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Uh, Just in the opening of this section, it is as if Paul is giving the churches a heads up that a life in Christ not only means that we have been given all of the blessings and benefits in the heavenly places that he outlined in chapter 1, but that we've also inherited a bunch of enemies in the heavenly places here in chapter 6. That while we have everything in Christ, all of the blessings in Christ, we now have the enemies of Christ. We who were once enemies of Christ, now made uh, friends of Christ and children of God the Father, uh, now have all of those enemies as well. And these enemies are not going to sit by idle while their kingdom grows smaller. You remember in chapter 2, there is a kingdom of darkness, and you were once part of that kingdom of darkness, and every soul, every individual that gets transferred to the kingdom of light, that kingdom of Satan, that kingdom of the evil of one, of that ancient serpent grows smaller and smaller and smaller. And so while that happens, and though the kingdom of darkness is losing, it does not mean that the kingdom of darkness is not going to, in a sad attempt to keep churches, uh, Christ's church from building, is not going to throw the full force of their weight on us. And we know this. We know that there is a war at play right now because of verses 11 through 12. Paul says, After his call to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, has put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So it's not as, it's not, uh, there might be schemes of the devil at play. There are schemes of the devil. Paul, that's the assumption in this verse here. And then he says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, If you thought Harry Potter was bad, verse 12 in the book of Ephesians is pretty wild to look at. I mean, look at that horde that he describes there. There is cosmic powers, uh, present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, this is not something that typically is on a, a modern believer's radar here in the American West. But the reality is, in the Bible, over and over and again, especially in our text, says, look, there is an otherworldly army that is after the church of God. There are gates of hell that are trying to prevail over the church of God, and you're caught up in this. To be in Jesus means to be at war. Notice uh, Paul in verse 10 this is why Paul says, you know, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The strength and armor that calls for uh, the believers is in the Lord and of God. And the reason why that is is because this enemy is, is much more uh, stronger than us. Though the king of kings is dominated and is reigning and ruling and he sits on his throne and nothing in the kingdom of darkness can actually have movement without the king actually permitting and allowing that to take place. We're all familiar with uh, Job chapter 1 where uh, even uh, these evil spiritual forces at work uh, actually have to come before the throne of God and say, hey, can I do this? Am I allowed to go here? Can I? And he's setting the boundaries to all of this. And so while there is a war at play, this is not a yin and yang kind of philosophy where like we don't know who's going to come out on the other side because we already know who came out on the other side. We know who walked out of the empty tomb. 
Right? We know who rose up and ascended to sit on the throne. We know who rules. We know who is exalted above all. But yet, Paul calls for the strength of the Lord and the armor of God because what is at play is though the enemy is lost, the enemy is still after each and every single one of those who are in Jesus. The enemy can't stand the fact that it's lost. You ever watch a uh, football or a basketball game? And uh, usually when the opposing team is losing... The opposing team is usually the one getting called on the most penalties, the most flat. Why? Not because it's going to make a difference in the turnout of the game, but because they're a little jarred. They're upset. They're mad. So they're going to start playing a little bit dirty. And so Paul says, look, you have to realize that you have an enemy right now, even though you can't see. And the reason why all of this is so difficult, you want to know why unity is so difficult, is because there is spiritual warfare at play. And even though you can't see it, doesn't mean it's not happening. And so we need to stand firmly on the gospel of Jesus. One of the ways that Paul, that's, that's how we fight this war. That's how we're going to engage in this war. Uh, Paul does not say, hey, go demon hunting and go perform exercise, exorcism ministries. Right? Paul is not calling for this kind of, you know, looking for the devil underneath every rock or every circumstance that happens. But he is saying, there are things at play, and the first way that you engage in this warfare, that you fight, is by standing firm on the gospel of Jesus. And the strength that we need has to come outside of ourselves and our own capacity if we're going to triumph. This otherworldly force uh, is too much for us, although it's not too much for the King of Kings. And so the first order, stand in the gospel of Christ. Notice how often this charge is given in the first few verses. Uh, notice in verse 11, uh, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes. We look at verse 13b, uh, that, you may be, that you may be able to withstand. And then he later on in verse 13 says, And having done all to what? Stand firm. Verse 14, Stand therefore. The command over and over again in these verses is to stand Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1-2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Look, we have a big gospel. We have a big gospel. And I've said this uh, in our series, in this study, and I'm going to say it again just so it gets driven home in our hearts, is that the gospel is simple, but uh, friends, it is not shallow. It is a big gospel that covers us head to toe. It is a gospel that covers us all around, every bit of who we are. That gospel that Paul is calling us to stand in is, uh, has got many layers to it. And, and the goal of the Christian life as we fight warfare is to stand on that big gospel. And look, it, it, and we're never going to reach the bottom of it. It's never going to come up short. Paul illustrates the many layers. Uh, we see a layer of depth to the gospel with each piece of armor. You know, Paul's, and this is familiar to us here, but I want us to take a look briefly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each piece of the armor, although I could do a, a whole sermon on each one. I just want us to see the layer of depth to the gospel that Paul calls us to stand on, uh, because there's a lot of it. So Paul says, uh, he begins with the belt of truth in 14a. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of of truth. Uh, we've already discussed, discussed earlier the importance of truth. 
Uh, I mean, Jesus said himself, he is the truth in John 14, 6. We just sang about that a moment ago, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And, and Paul echoes that in Ephesians 4, 21 with the truth is in Jesus. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And because of this, he called the church to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 24. And to put away falsehood and to speak the truth with his neighbor. Chapter 4, verse 25. So in a culture where absolute truth uh, is, subje- is, is subjective, meaning everybody has their own truth, we all have our own uh, path, we all, all have our uh, truth is up to the interpreter, uh, Paul is saying that the gospel that he has preached, the gospel that has been handed down to him, the gospel that is Jesus Christ, look, it is true, not because uh, someone feels that it's true, not because one generation deems it true over the other generation, not because of what anybody else says, but because God is truth. God himself in Jesus Christ is truth. He was the one that said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. I am the truth. Not that I have it, not that I know uh, some of that truth, right? But I am the truth. And so Paul is saying, when you stand on the gospel, you stand on objective truth that the reality is, is that God is not only the source of truth, but he is truth. Uh, The gospel, the God of the gospel that saved you, that called you, uh, that is for you, that has redeemed you, that has given you all the spiritual benefits in the heavenly places. Look, it's not based on what anybody else has said, but on what God has done. You want to know why you should believe the gospel? Not because I'm up here preaching it and not because I, I had an experience about it, uh, but because God has promised it from Genesis 3 and he has fulfilled it in everything we see in the life and uh, ministry of Jesus all the way up to the apostles and even up to this very moment. Everything that Jesus um, said he was, what he would do, has come to pass and is being fulfilled right now. Look, the gospel is truth. We can, what we're, when we stand on the gospel, when Paul says put on the belt of truth, he's saying, look, uh, stand on something that's a matter of fact. It doesn't shift. You don't have to worry about it changing based on new developments in culture, uh, new philosophies that come your way. Look, you stand firm on the fact that God uh, is unchanging. And therefore, the message of Christ, the message of salvation is also unchanging. It's not going to change. And so you can stand firm on that. You can stand secure on that. So guess what that means? Well, what it means when, uh, you know, you you have a day or a week where you might not be feeling the truths of the gospel. Well, guess what, saints? You can stand on it. You can still stand on it. You don't have to feel it. You don't have to be going through a great time in your life, or you could be going through a great time in your life. It doesn't matter what you read about. It doesn't matter uh, how many years have passed. Right? Have you ever heard of the argument that religion was just kind of this like for the dark ages and now that we've kind of entered into this period of light and technology and all this, like that we don't really need that. It was helpful. I mean, I've heard some philosophers say religion was helpful to a certain group of people. And what they're saying is that the gospel was just kind of pragmatic. It was only for a time. Look, the gospel is for all time and ages, for all people, for all circumstances, for all places, no matter where you're at. And Paul says, look, strap on the belt of truth and stand firm on that. So Paul goes from the belt of truth, right? And now we go into another layer of the gospel. And and Paul says, uh, and having, in verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So not only is the gospel true, 
It's a matter of historical fact, theological fact. Uh, but the gospel is righteousness given. The gospel is righteousness given. 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, This is probably one of my favorite verses to share the gospel with people. If you want to know the gospel in a nutshell. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You know that perfect, uh, holy, righteous, just God who never errs, who never falters, who never lies, perfect in all His being and who He is, holy and transcendent and and just high above the universe. That God, that God's righteousness has been given to you by faith in Jesus. That righteousness that you could never claim for yourself is given to you in Jesus. That's Paul's argument in Romans 3.21-27. But now the righteousness of God, Paul says, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, in other words, the righteousness of God, that standard for given to all who believe in Jesus, for there is no distinction, Paul continues in Romans, and are justified, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And he continues, Then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Let that truth sink into you right now. The righteousness of God. Of God. For all who believe. That's what Paul in Ephesians 6 says. Hey, put on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. At your very core. The thing that guards your heart, the thing that made you a new heart, that righteousness of God that belongs to you, you wear that. You wear that as a display for all to... Look, I am in the righteousness of God. I have the righteousness of God. I can wear the righteousness of God and not my own unrighteous glory falling short uh, works or goodness or moral code or whatever it is, right? I wear the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. And Paul says uh, to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus is to stand firm on the truth of it and to stand firm on the righteousness that's been given to you in Jesus. The gospel is not God saved some bad people and made them good and moral and upright. It was that God saved dead people, Ephesians 2. God called dead people and made them alive in Jesus, unrighteous, unholy. I mean, Paul's argument all in Romans, uh, the book of Romans, uh, is that God died for the ungodly. Jesus died for those who were unholy, unrighteous, and the gospel is going from unrighteousness to complete righteousness in Christ. And so Paul says, hey, stand firm on that truth. You shift from that truth, you're going to lose the war quickly. 
you shift from that truth, well, then that's, that says right there that the spiritual forces in the heavenly places has held you captive in some way, has, gotten to, has made you believe some type of lie. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus. So, so, so when Satan or his workers, because this is what happens with the spiritual forces at play, right? Like, they're not coming at us. We don't sometimes always... Um, well, well, here's how the spiritual forces work. Um, have you ever been tempted that something might be more liberating or would make you more happy than Jesus? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about man, this following Jesus thing, this being in Jesus thing is a little bit difficult because if I'm in Jesus and I really can't be wrapped up in something else, I kind of want to be wrapped up in this or that or, you know, this looks good to me, this feels good to me, this is right in my own eyes. And so what you have right there is you have Satan or you have his, one of his little minions or whatever's happening in the heavenly places. Uh, what you have is you have this whispering lie that's saying, hey, something's better than the righteousness of Christ. That could take the form of legalism, right? When you try to outwork everybody else's salvation and work towards your salvation, uh, that could take the form in uh, what they call antinomianism. That's a pretty big word, but all it means is, uh, you know, because grace, I can just do whatever. I don't have to abide by an ethical standard or any law at all. And so what Satan does there is says, hey, hey, you know what would be better than the righteousness of Jesus? Man, what would be better than the righteousness of Jesus? Nothing would be better than the righteousness of Jesus. But when the, when the evil forces are at work, in chapter, or verse 12, what's happening is there's a lie that's going on. Hey, something's better than the righteousness of Jesus. So, or maybe you're not being tempted to be liberated by something that could not be any more liberating, but maybe you're here this morning and... Uh, the Satan has tempted you to think, um, I'm not really a good Christian. I'm kind of a lousy Christian. Yeah, I haven't you know, read my Bible in a couple weeks. I haven't prayed uh, the prayer list and the bulletin in, in a long time. I haven't, um, I haven't really tithed in a while. I, I, haven't, I haven't reached out to that uh, neighbor. I haven't really done this. So if Satan can't tempt you to want something more than Jesus, he'll tempt you to think uh, that you're not even in him in the first place. Loved ones, we need not crumble and fall over temptation or accusation because we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Stand firm in the gospel. And then Paul moves to the, uh, verse 15. He says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul says, Put on your gospel shoes. He says here, there's another layer of the gospel at work in these gospel feet that Paul talks about. He says, and as shoes for your feet, put on the gospel, or uh, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel is not only truth, and it's not only righteousness given, but it is also peace with God. It's also peace with God. Uh, remember back in uh, Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, he himself is our peace. And just a few verses later in Ephesians 2.17, Paul writes, 
Uh, he came and preached peace to, who, to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. And then in Romans 5.1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the human heart really, really longs for? It's peace. And I'm not talking about sitting on the beach, uh, you know, with your favorite drink and your favorite, you know, whatever. I mean, that can be peaceful. I'm talking about inner, real inner peace that, that actually has an assurance that I'm okay with my Creator. That I'm okay before God. That at the end of my day, and, and look, you can spend, a lot of people can spend a lot of time su- suppressing those thoughts, suppressing that truth, driving that kind of, uh, you know, kind of worry out of their mind with all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you know what, you know what most people are going to think about at the end of the day when they put their head on the pillow, um, if they ever have a moment in their life uh, where they stop long enough and they think about the, uh, the shortness of life, the frailty of life, the fact that we are but dust, you know what's going to come up in their head? I wonder if there's a God, and I wonder if that God is okay with me. I wonder if that God accepts me. I wonder if that God uh, is... I wonder by the end of my days... Is the good going to outweigh the bad? Am I at peace with God? And the Bible says if you are not in Christ, you're at war with Him. You're an enemy. And Paul says, look, the gospel, gospel says, hey, you're no longer an enemy, but you're child. You're not, only en- you're, not, you're not no longer an enemy, but you're a friend. You're no longer an enemy, but you're a servant in the kingdom of light. And so we see this multifaceted, deep gospel that Paul calls us to stand in and that we're not going to reach the bottom of here. Look, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. And then Paul moves forward with more armor. He says, uh, uh, and take up, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, remember, faith was a gift in Ephesians chapter 2. That was a gift given to God as part of our salvation. That faith that we have in Jesus, that faith that we proclaim proclaim Him as Lord and Savior, that was a gift. The fact that we can exercise that gift is a gift from God. And Paul says, hey, that gift that you've been given, take that up. Take up the shield of faith. In all circumstances. Look, Paul doesn't say not just in the bad times and the hard times, but in the good times, take up the shield of faith. In all circumstances. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, my faith feels kind of thin and that shield kind of feels a bit heavy to take up right now. We've all been there, right? I mean, we've all been to the point where, you know, someone looks at us and, you know, and they're trying to be helpful and they're trying to be, you know, spiritual and they're like, well, just have faith. Just have faith. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I do have faith. It's just, it's just small right now. It's, it's just thin. It's just... It's just difficult, and someone's like, yeah, well, just have faith. Hey, can I just remind you, can I offer this? Paul is writing to a whole church. And so part of taking up the whole armor of God requires the whole church of God. So if your faith is wearing thin, or the shield of faith is kind of heavy for you right now, well, it's a good thing that you've been adopted into a family, because if you can't pick up the shield of faith, well, look, you have brothers and sisters around you who might be able to pick up the shield of faith right now in the season of their life that they're in. You don't have to be the only one with a shield. Um, I'm a bit of a, 
I'm a bit of a like nerd when it comes to Anglo-Saxon historical drama films and documentaries. I can't tell you how many like uh, movies and shows I have watched that involved uh, an ununited England uh, fighting Vikings. It's just I. I, and then uh, Nathan showed me his sword and shield the other weekend, and I was like, this is me. This is my calling, uh, to, be a, to be a Viking. Um, and so uh, it, w one thing I noticed when I watch these shows or when I watch these movies is there's always a point where the two opposing armies are uh, standing off against one another, and right before they enter into battle, one, both leaders on both sides are going to shout out uh, something called shield wall. Right? And so what you, do, what you have is you have a, a whole army, and as soon as shield wall is called out, each and every single individual with their shields puts the shield up, and then you have some people putting their shields in front of the person in front of them, and you just have this massive group of people that are shielded by each individual shield of a person. And so when Paul says pick up the shield of faith, Paul is not expecting that each individual only picks up the shield of faith, but that the entire church of God picks up their shield of faith. In other words, Paul is calling out shield wall, church. Pick up the armor of God. Put on the armor of God, and this is an entire church of God endeavor. So you don't need to be the only one with a shield. You don't need to be the only one with the belt of truth. You don't need to be the only one with the breastplate of righteousness, because when we're saved, we're saved into the family of God, and we're called to live out this life with the people of God. The second order our text gives us in waging war against the kingdom of darkness so we stand firmly on the gospel of Jesus. And then Paul, in verses 17 through 20, speak fearlessly the word of God. Speak fearlessly the word of God. Paul continues in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So at this point, we've gone all the way from the belt, and now we've got the helmet of salvation. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, anybody played football, uh, but I, can you imagine going out into the football field without your helmet on? Or some of, or maybe if you didn't play football, I know a lot of you ride motorcycles. Imagine riding a motorcycle without your helmet on. Why do you need a helmet? Because when you take a fall, it's your head that needs to be most protected. In other words, Paul is saying, look, you've been covered from head to toe. In other words, God's got, God's got you. Take the helmet of salvation. You're already strapped up. You're already ready to go. You've got people with you with their shields. We've got the whole armor of God as a body of Christ, and you have been covered. You want to know why uh, it's blasphemy? Well, you want to know why the gospel is enough? Is because Jesus has covered every single bit of us, every single bit of us, every, from past, present to future. Every single part of our lives has been covered by the depth of the gospel. Paul writes in Romans eleven twenty two, "Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom." and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. You could never outlive or outsin the gospel of Jesus. You just can't. So, and, uh, you might be thinking at this point, well, okay, well, where does the order of speaking fearlessly the Word of God come from? Well, it's, it's, it's here in taking up the sword of the Spirit. Move from the helmet of salvation. Paul writes, uh, and take and the sword of the Spirit. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So he says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It is what God has said. It is what has been written down for our instruction and our encouragement. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Notice in verse 17 and 18 this little subtle connection. And we can miss it if we read quick. But when Paul says take up the sword of the Spirit, and then he says in verse 
18, to pray at all times in the Spirit. Well, if the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and we're called to pray in the Spirit, then what is the best way to pray for one another and to pray over ourselves? To pray the Word of God. You speak fearlessly the Word of God. You don't necessarily, again, have to come up here uh, and to preach. Right? You can speak fearlessly the Word of God by simply praying the Word of God over one another and for over yourselves. Can you imagine uh, what our prayer sessions would be like if we prayed uh, chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that from every, whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Like these prayers, if you have ever asked yourself, I have no idea what to pray for, uh, for the person next to me or myself. You know, Paul says in Romans 8 that when you struggle to pray, you don't know what to pray for, the Spirit prays on your behalf, intercedes for you. So look, if you're struggling to pray, or you don't know what to pray, you're thinking like, I'm not a really good prayer. Like, I don't know how to use all the theological words. I mean, I've had people tell me like, you know, like, I, just, I, I just don't know the theological terms to pray. Well, like, you have a Bible and you know the scriptures, just pray the scriptures. I would rather someone pray the scriptures over me uh, than come up with some long drawn out prayer with a bunch of spiritual lingo, mumbo jumbo, right? I'd rather the spirit, this, I'd rather a brother or sister take up the sword of the spirit on my behalf and fight for me in prayer. Speak fearlessly the word of God over your families. Speak fearlessly the word of God over your relationships, over the church as a whole. Speak fearlessly the word of God over your communities. Pray the word of God. When the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Well, what did Jesus uh, instruct them? Well, he gave them this simple prayer and this outline. And so why do we ignore that prayer? Why do we ignore Philippians 1, 9 through 11, where Paul says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The best way we fight this war is to speak fearlessly the word of God. Make sure the word of God permeates throughout the churches of God. Make sure your conversations are filled. And that's what Paul uh, talked about earlier in Ephesians is singing hymns to one another, psalms to one another, uh, giving thanks to God uh, with praise in your heart. Look, we are all, uh, Jared, one of the promises of the new covenant is that nobody's going to need to teach us because we all have knowledge. We all have the word of God and we're all little prophets and priests towards one another in the family of God. So speak fearlessly the word of God in prayer, but look, don't only speak uh, fearlessly the word of God in prayer, but do it in your proclamation as well. Paul concludes our passage here this morning uh, with a prayer request of his own. It says in verse 19 through 20, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You know, it's not just the apostles that were called to proclaim boldly the word of God. Uh, in, in fact, I, I can't help but to think, did Paul hear about the believers uh, in Acts, in the beginning of Acts, after Peter and John were let go from prison? What was their prayer? Their prayer was, Lord, uh, you've seen the attacks that they have on your servants. Give us boldness to proclaim the word of God. Give us boldness to continue to keep proclaiming the word of God in this city. A church that does not proclaim the gospel to others is a church that has opted out of the war. If we are not proclaiming the gospel, the good news that we stand firmly on, if that is not our proclamation, 
then something has gone seriously wrong. To not proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those without the good news of Jesus Christ is to forfeit and say, look, I'm out of the war. Are we praying the word over one another and proclaiming the word to those who are outside fearlessly and expectantly? Which side of the war are you on this morning? You know, some people might think, well, I, I, I don't have, a, uh, I don't have a, a particular feeling towards Christianity, towards Jesus. I'm just kind of neutral. Look, friends, the Bible does not give us a place of neutrality. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of light. And if you're in the kingdom of light, are you on the sideline or are you on the playing field right now? Are you taking up the armor of God with your brothers and sisters? Are you speaking fearlessly the word of God over your brothers and sisters? Are you speaking fearlessly the word of God to those who don't know Jesus, those who you work with, those who are in your neighborhood, those who are, who are in the uh, schools as your of your children? Are you taking opportunities to fight, to push back against the kingdom of darkness? And let me ask, where do you stand this morning? You stand on the on the gospel of Jesus with, with all the truth and with all the righteousness and, and all the peace and all the faith that is found solely in Him? Or are you standing on your own goodness? If you come in here this morning, you thought to yourself, man, I've been going to church for a really long time. I'm going to do real well at the throne of God one day when I'm standing before Him. Friend, if you are not in Jesus, if you are not standing on the gospel today, you will not be able to stand very long before the throne of God. If you stand alone by yourself, without an advocate, you will fall incredibly short of God's righteousness on that day. But you don't have to. And look, I, I, I pray every single person in this room is, is in Jesus and is claiming the righteousness of Christ, but for us to assume, for us to just assume the gospel within our churches and within our communities, that keeps us from preaching the gospel to one another over and over and over again. Friend, if you are not in Christ, today is the day to be in Christ, free from condemnation and the wrath of God through faith in Him. Let your anthem be today and that day. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When He shall come with trumpet sound, O oh, may I then in Him be found. In Him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Don't wait for the day when it will be too late. And for those who have, who are right now firmly standing on the gospel of Jesus, my word to you this morning is stand firm, hold your ground, keep standing. Even if feeling is fleeting, even if circumstance is shifting and it's chaotic, and look, stand firm on that ground. It's not moving. It's not going anywhere. And you're covered head to toe, saint. We are covered head to toe. So stand firm on the gospel of Jesus and speak the word in prayer and in proclamation. And guess what? See the, see the Lord fight for you. See the Lord build His church and that kingdom of darkness grow smaller and smaller and smaller. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. God, we just thank You that that empty tomb is empty and that throne is occupied. Because we fight with a risen Savior. We fight with a King who is in complete control.
who sits, doesn't pace in heaven, who sits on his throne and laughs at the scoffs here down on earth, who's building his church and who said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, may we be, may we be found faithful. May we put on, may we stand on the gospel of Jesus in the strength of the Lord our God, in his might. May we stand firm and may we speak fearlessly. And may we be found faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.